Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1125, with a release and air date of Saturday, September 19th, 2020. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community worldwide, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1125 of This Week in Amateur Radio. The Hurricane WatchNet wraps up another marathon session for two different storms and may be preparing for more. The FCC grants the AWRL request for rule waivers for the West Coast wildfires and incoming tropical storms. 5 MHz interoperability channels are designated for use with the West Coast wildfires. The League is seeking changes to the FCC decision to remove amateurs from the 9-centimeter band. A scientific analysis determines that we are now officially in Solar Cycle 25. The International Telecommunications Union releases its 2020 ITU Radio Regulations publication, and you can get it for free. Virtual amateur radio club meetings have become a success around the world, and amateur operators in West Bengal, India, reunite a missing man with his family. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features, We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, will answer the question, is it safe to buy third-party lithium-ion batteries? And he will also attempt to describe public-key cryptography. Australia's own Anil Benshoff, VK6FLAB, will describe yak shaving. What's that? Well, that's when you get sidetracked by multiple other tasks before completing what you originally set out to do. Our own amateur radio historian Bill Continelli, W2XOY, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill will take a nostalgic look back at Olson Electronics. And our tower climbing and antenna master Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will talk about the process of removing rusted bolts from antennas that are mounted on your tower. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio here in Albany, New York, where today we actually have blue skies. For the past three or four days, we've had milky skies from the smoke from the fires on the West Coast. Interesting. I'm George, W2XBS. From our news bureau, just outside Albany, New York, across from the Hudson River, within viewing range of the Corning Tower, I am Rich Lawrence, KB2MOB. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, along the southern shore of Lake Ontario, where there's a definite feeling of autumn in the air, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And reporting from the fall colors of the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York, I'm Don Hulick, K2ATJ. And reporting from our news bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where Autumn is paying us an early visit, I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. 30 minutes of solid amateur radio news 
begins now. I'm W2XBS with a late-breaking story as we come to air this week. The Hurricane Watchnet is keeping a close eye on three systems, Hurricane Teddy, Tropical Depression 22, and the newly formed Tropical Storm Wilfred. As of 1500 UTC on Friday, Hurricane Teddy was a Category 4 hurricane with maximum sustained winds of 130 miles per hour with higher gusts. It was located about 885 miles southeast of Bermuda, which already took a hit earlier this week from Hurricane Paulette. Watches may be required this weekend for Bermuda, and Teddy may affect eastern Canada on Tuesday afternoon. The current forecast brings the center of Teddy about 150 miles east of Bermuda late night Saturday or very early Sunday morning. It seems that Bermuda has been a magnet for tropical cyclones, Hurricane Watch Net Manager Bobby Graves, KB5HAV, said. He cited Tropical Storm Fay in 2014, Hurricane Gonzalo, a Category 4 storm in 2015, Hurricane Joaquin, also a Category 4 storm in 2015, Hurricane Nicole, another Category 4 storm, which took place in 2016, and this week's Hurricane Paulette, a Category 1 storm. At 1500 UTC on Friday, the National Hurricane Center began issuing advisories on the newly formed tropical storm Wilfred. This storm was located about 630 miles west-southwest of the Cabo Verde Islands, with maximum sustained winds of 40 miles per hour. Wilford should not pose a problem for anyone other than shipping lanes. This system is currently forecast to dissipate within 96 hours. Tropical Depression 22 is going to be the system to watch. At 1500 UTC Friday, it was located about 275 miles east-northeast of Tampico, Mexico, and about 255 miles southeast of the mouth of the Rio Grande. Tropical Depression 22 currently has a maximum sustained wind speed of 35 miles per hour, and is moving to the north-northeast at 7 miles per hour, forecast to become a tropical storm on Saturday. Late Saturday or Sunday, this system is ex- late Saturday or early Sunday, this system is expected to turn slowly to the west. Tropical Depression 22 is forecast to become a Category 1 hurricane on Sunday, but weaken to a tropical storm on Tuesday. For the remainder of 2020, named storms will come from the Greek alphabet, starting with Alpha. In fact, a subtropical storm named Alpha has formed near the coast of Portugal, but it is expected to be short-lived according to the National Hurricane Center. However, as we've come to know, things can and usually do change. So, residents along the Texas coast and perhaps Louisiana should keep a close eye on the progress of the system, Graves advised. And now, with our lead story this week, here is Rich Lawrence, KB2MOB. Rich? Leading off our news this week, the Hurricane WatchNet just stood down from another extended session of 71 hours of continuous operation for Hurricane Paulette and Hurricane Sally. Hurricane WatchNet manager Bobby Graves, KB5HAV, said it seems like long activations such as these are happening all too often. I suppose Mother Nature hasn't been getting the attention she desires, Graves quipped. The Hurricane WatchNet activated on Sunday, September 13th at 2100 UTC on both 14.325 MHz and 7.268 MHz. During the opening hours, Graves said, the net lined up reporting stations on Bermuda for Hurricane Paulette as the storm was heading their direction. Hurricane Paulette made landfall the next morning at around 0900 UTC as a Category 1 hurricane with sustained winds of 90 miles per hour. 
We received numerous reports of widespread power and internet outages along with minor damage graves recounted. Once we completed operations for Hurricane Paulette, we quickly shifted our focus to what was soon to be Hurricane Sally, he continued. And within an hour, Sally was upgraded to a Category 1 hurricane with sustained winds of 90 miles per hour. Graves said Sally was an unusual storm that all but stalled, meandering 100 miles offshore for a while before finally heading toward shore. This makes planning for an activation a nightmare, he said. One never knows when a storm will stall, slow, or speed up. Graves also said Sally was a forecasting nightmare with respect to its destination. On Sunday, the forecast called for a Tuesday landfall southeast of New Orleans, he said. Then the track shifted to Bay St. Louis on Tuesday evening. As time went on, the track kept shifting more to the east. Sally ultimately made landfall at Gulf Shores, Alabama, around 0945 UTC on Wednesday as a strong Category 2 hurricane with sustained winds of 105 miles per hour. After landfall, Sally was downgraded to a tropical storm and we began calling for stations with reports of damage, storm surge, and flooding. The net officially secured operations at 2000 UTC on Wednesday. But the Caribbean Basin has more in store during this hurricane season. We are now keeping a close eye on Hurricane Teddy, Graves said, noting that Bermuda could be affected by another hurricane by late Sunday night or early Monday morning. Also, we are keeping a close eye on a system that seems to be getting better organized in the southwestern Gulf of Mexico. The next name will be Wilfred, and after that, storms will be designated using the Greek alphabet, starting with Alpha. If we reach Alpha, it will be the second time in history to use that name, Graves pointed out. The first was in 2005. Graves expressed his appreciation to the amateur radio community for keeping 14.325 and 7.268 MHz clear during the activation. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. The FCC has granted ARRL's request for a temporary waiver to permit amateur data transmissions at a higher symbol rate than currently permitted by Section 97.307, Subpart F of the FCC Amateur Service Rules. The Commission acted to facilitate hurricane and wildfire relief communications within the U.S. and its territories. Section 97.307, subpart F, limits the symbol rate or the rate at which the carrier waveform amplitude, frequency, and or phase is varied to transmit information for HF amateur radio teletype data transmissions to 300 baud for frequencies below 28 MHz, with the exception being 60 meters and 1200 baud in the 10 meter band. The digital signals must use one of the codes specified in section 97.309, subpart A of the rules, but an amateur station transmitting a RTTY or data emission using one of the specified digital codes may use any technique whose technical characteristics have been publicly documented. In 2016, 
In response to an ARRL petition for rulemaking, the Commission proposed to remove the symbol rate limitations, which it tentatively concluded had to become unnecessary due to advances in modulation techniques and no longer served a useful purpose. However, the FCC did not include the ARRL proposal to limit signal bandwidth to that which the Commission had said it intended when it originally adopted the 300 baud limit. The proceeding is currently pending. The League sought the waiver for amateur radio licensees directly involved with hurricane and wildfire relief via HF using Pactor 4 modems for communications within the U.S. and its territories relative to several impending hurricane situations and wildfires in the western U.S. ARRL's petition noted that Section 97.307 subpart F of the amateur rules prevents the use of Pactor 4, a data protocol that permits relatively high-speed data transmission. ARRL noted that past FCC temporary waivers have allowed this protocol during similar events. ARRL also stated that trained amateur radio operators with communications equipment are actively preparing to assist radio amateurs involved with the Amateur Radio Emergency Service, working with federal, state, and local emergency management officials to assist with disaster relief communications. We conclude that ARRL's request should be granted, the FCC said. ARRL stands ready to assist the area potentially impacted by the impending hurricanes and ongoing wildfires to conduct disaster relief communications. ARRL asserts that the higher data rates offered by PACTOR 3 and PACTOR 4 emissions are critical to sending relief communications. We conclude that granting the requested waiver is in the public interest. The waiver is limited to 60 days and applies only to stations in the continental U.S. and Puerto Rico using PACTOR 3 and PACTOR 4 emissions and who are directly involved with HF hurricane and wildfire relief communications. The Federal Emergency Management Agency announced on Tuesday that two 60-meter channels have been made available as necessary for interoperability between U.S. government stations and U.S. amateur radio stations involved in emergency communications related to the wildland firefighting response in California, Oregon, and Washington, and to Hurricane Sally. These interoperability channels will remain active until the need for these channels no longer exists. Channel 1, Primary Voice Traffic, 5332 kHz Center Channel, 5330.5 kHz USB Voice. Channel 2, Digital Traffic, 5348 kHz Center Channel, 5346.5 kHz USB, with a 1.5 kHz offset to center of digital waveform. Frequencies may be modified or added to by FEMA Region 10 for their area of operations due to the existing 5 MHz 60-meter interoperability plans. Amateur radio is secondary on the 5 MHz band and should yield to operational traffic related to the firefighting and hurricane response. Although the intended use for these channels is interoperability between federal government stations and licensed U.S. amateur stations, federal government stations are primary users and amateurs are secondary. 
Military Amateur Radio System, following FEMA's lead on the interoperability channel designations, Army Mars Program Manager Paul English, WD8DBY, says he has alerted all Mars members of the FEMA channel designators, and Mars members are prepared to support the response efforts as needed. It's now official. The solar minimum between solar cycles 24 and 25, the period when the sun is least active, occurred in December 2019 when the 13-month smooth sunspot number fell to 1.8. For more details on the new solar cycle, we go to Rick Lindquist, WW1MR, reporting from League Headquarters in Newington. This, according to the Solar Cycle 25 Prediction Panel, co-chaired by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, and the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA. We are now in Solar Cycle 25 with peak sunspot activity expected in 2025, the panel said. The panel expressed high confidence that Solar Cycle 25 would break the trend of weakening solar activity seen over the past four solar cycles. At 11 years, Solar Cycle 24 was of average length and had the fourth smallest intensity since regular record keeping began in 1755 with what is considered Solar Cycle 1. It was also the weakest cycle in a century. At solar maximum in April 2014, sunspots peaked at 114 for the cycle. That's well below the average of 179. We predict the decline in solar cycle amplitude seen from cycles 21 through 24 has come to an end, said Lisa Upton, panel co-chair and solar physicist with Space Systems Research Corporation. There is no indication we are approaching a Maunder-type minimum in solar activity. Solar Cycle 24's progression was unusual. The Sun's northern hemisphere led the sunspot cycle, peaking more than two years ahead of the southern hemisphere sunspot peak. This resulted in fewer sunspots at solar maximum than if the two hemispheres were in phase. For the past eight months, activity on the Sun has steadily increased, indicating that we are transitioned to solar cycle 25, forecast to be a fairly weak cycle, about the same as solar cycle 24. Solar cycle 25 is expected to peak in July 2025 with a predicted 115 sunspots. How quickly solar activity rises is an indicator on how strong the solar cycle will be, said Doug Biesecker, the NOAA-NASA panel co-chair and a solar physicist at NOAA's Space Weather Prediction Center. Although we've seen a steady increase in sunspot activity this year, it is slow. While we are not predicting a particularly active solar cycle 25, violent eruptions from the sun can occur at any time, Biesecker added. Before solar cycle 25 peaks in 2024, NOAA is slated to launch a new spacecraft dedicated to operational space weather forecasting. The Space Weather Follow-On L1 Observatory will be equipped with instruments that sample the solar wind, provide imagery of coronal mass ejections, and monitor other extreme activity from the sun in finer detail than before. NOAA's next geostationary operational environmental satellite, known as GOES-U, is also scheduled to launch in 2024. 
Goes U will carry three solar monitoring instruments, including the first compact coronagraph, which will help detect coronal mass ejections. Enhanced observations of the sun from these satellites will help improve space weather forecasting. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. Radio Today reports that TuneIn has removed access for UK listeners to the majority of radio stations based outside the country due to licensing reasons. The move follows a high court battle against TuneIn from Sony and Warner, who say TuneIn was liable for both direct and authorizing infringement in connection to all but the UK-based stations contained in its app. TuneIn argued it was simply connecting users to streams owned by radio stations and acted as simply a search engine for radio, just communicating the music contained in each radio station's stream to the public. The judge didn't accept TuneIn's argument that it was just a search engine similar to Google, saying users can do so much more than search, such as browse music by genre and artist. And while the ruling was made last November, the changes are only just being made with users complaining on social media that they can no longer listen to stations from outside the UK. TuneIn support is responding by saying, due to a court ruling in the United Kingdom, we will be restricting international stations to prohibit their availability in the UK, with limited exceptions. A spokesperson for Sony Music commented that TuneIn is unlawfully redistributing and commercializing links to unlicensed music on a widespread scale. Updating a story we broke last week, Amateur radio examinations are not being eliminated in Brazil. With more details on this story, we go to Rick Lindquist, WW1ME, reporting from League Headquarters. I noticed that the country's telecommunications regulator, Anatel, released recently, was intended to prompt discussion and elicit comment on the idea, but it prompted confusion, too. On September 10th, Anatel responded to a letter from Brazil's National Amateur Radio Society, Labre, that expressed concern regarding the proposal to scrap amateur radio exams, Anatel told Labre that no such change is in the works, although the regulator did say that some rules and regulations would be revised and modernized in due course. Enrique Gravina, PU3IKE, contacted ARRL to offer his take on the confusion. He said many people have complained to the regulator over the years about amateur exams, when Anatel considers that a particular issue raised represents a problem area, it selects a complaint to use as a starting point for discussion, he said. This is akin to a petition for rulemaking that our FCC might put on notice to invite comment after a suggested rules change. That appears to be what happened in this case. Labre has said it was satisfied with Anatel's response and will continue to collaborate with the agency to help modernize the regulatory framework that governs amateur radio in Brazil. By the way, Brazil is one of the few countries that continue to require Morse code proficiency for advanced licenses. 
With respect to the merit presented in the correspondence, this will be analyzed and considered by the technical team of this agency in the finalization of the regulatory impact analysis report and the respective regulatory proposal, if any, Anatel told Labra. Portuguese is a difficult language, even for natives, and it gets worse when we speak and write in legal terms and in bureaucratic processes that are very complicated, Gravina allowed. Hams who are not law students or lawyers read the proposal and did not understand what was happening. Anatel said it's considering extending the deadline for public comment on the group of proposals that included the suggestion to eliminate ham radio exams. Due to the pandemic, some changes have already come about in the form of online exams for two licensed classes, Class A and C. Brazil retains a 5 words per minute Morse code requirement for the Class B license, and that has not been made available online. Applicants must have one year of experience as a Class B licensee to sit for the Class A exam. The Morse code exam can only be taken at an Anatel agency office, available in most Brazilian states. It's no secret that virtual amateur radio clubs work. Clubs across the United States hold virtual meetings every month during the ongoing pandemic. In the United Kingdom, Essex Ham is a standout as they've been successfully doing this since 2011. Now they've got some company, largely as a product of the pandemic. The online amateur radio community club came into being this past spring following discussions between Francis Hennigan, M0UKF, and four or five other hams. Francis tells the club's story on a YouTube interview with McCallum McCormick, M0MCX, noting that the need for a virtual club became apparent to him in March when he volunteered to assist with remote invigilation of license exams. The online amateur radio club evolved from there. Although it's predominantly a UK-focused club, membership is not necessarily limited geographically. Francis told Callum that the club, which has about 130 members, is hoping especially to reach into the community of younger hams. Weekly nets are also being held on the digital modes, including DMR, D-Star, Echolink, and Fusion. He said there are no fees because there are no costs. Even though the club is only a few months old, organizers are already setting up a buddy system to support new members. The club begins its intermediate level training course on the 28th of September. For more details about the online Amateur Radio Community Club, visit their Twitter feed, which is at M0OUK. The International Telecommunications Union has published the 2020 ITU Radio Regulations, the international treaty governing the global use of RF spectrum and satellite orbits. The publication contains the complete text of the radio regulations adopted during World Radio Communication Conference 2019 held last year in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Available in all six of ITU's official languages, the 2020 ITU radio regulations are in effect for all signatory parties on January 1, 2021. Electronic versions are free, and the traditional four-volume box set, as well as a multilingual DVD, will be available for purchase in the coming weeks, the ITU said. Publication of the radio regulations is the culmination of the hard work and intense deliberations that took place during WRC-19, said ITU Secretary General 
Hulin Zhao. Efficient and economical use of the naturally limited radio frequency spectrum is key to ensuring we bring the benefits of connectivity and digital transformation to people everywhere. The ITU radio regulations are a vital vehicle for this endeavor. The ITU said when it comes to allocating radio frequencies, including sharing and harmonizing their use for different purposes, the radio regulations are the ultimate tool. They ensure the use of the RF spectrum is rational, equitable, efficient, and economical, all while aiming to prevent harmful interference between different radio services, the ITU said. The radio regulations govern 40 radio communication services and are designed to protect existing radio services while enabling the introduction of new and enhanced services. The ARRL Board of Directors has named James Brown, K9YC, as the recipient of the 2019 ARRL Technical Service Award. The board cited Brown's frequent contributions to and presentations at amateur radio forums at conventions including Dayton Hamvention, Pacificon, and Visalia. Brown of Santa Cruz, California, has also collaborated with the ARRL Lab, contributed to various ARRL publications, including the Handbook and the Antenna Book, and has shared his technical and educational expertise in the fields of audio engineering, RF interference, and other aspects of electronics and engineering. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Coming up, can you trust third-party replacement batteries? Next. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Great question, and really uh, it applies to more than just laptops, phones, Everything has lithium-ion batteries in it these days, uh, even some cars, your laptop, uh, your camera. And the problem with all lithium-ion batteries, in fact, all batteries in general, is eventually they wear out. Batteries generate electricity through a chemical reaction. In the case of rechargeables, it's a chemical reaction that can be reversed. So you reverse it. That's how you charge it up. Then it, let it go. It generates electricity. Then you reverse it. Then it generates electricity. But all batteries have this limitation that after a while, the chemistry starts to break down. And it starts, the first symptom is you can't quite generate as much electricity. The battery won't hold a, as much of a charge. And eventually, it stops holding a charge entirely. The chemical reaction is no more. So replacing lithium-ion batteries is pretty much a way of life. It's either that or replace the device. And for most of us, these devices are expensive. When you're buying a replacement battery... It's always safest to buy it from the original equipment manufacturer. Uh, if you're doing it for a phone from the company that made the phone, for a camera, the company that made the camera, because lithium-ion chemistry is a little bit dangerous. In fact, really, if you think about it, anything that can store a lot of energy in a small space and release it slowly could potentially become explosive if it released it quickly. Gasoline has that property, so does lithium-ion batteries. All lithium-ion batteries are packaged carefully so that they 
don't explode, although any lithium-ion battery, if punctured, has the potential to get very, very hot, sometimes burst into flames, and if the package containing it is sealed sufficiently, literally explodes spewing toxic chemicals all over the place. This is an undesirable result. And you may remember a few years ago, those hoverboards that all the kids were wearing, uh, were riding, uh, those had a big problem. Those had lithium-ion rechargeables, but they were made in no-name Chinese factories. And in many cases, those rechargeables did catch on fire and cause significant damage. I have a good friend who's a, a judge here in Petaluma had thirty or $40,000 damage to her home. Thank goodness nobody was hurt from a hoverboard that burst into flames and, uh, and caused a lot of damage. So we know lithium-ion batteries can be dangerous. How are we protected? Well, if they're properly packaged, and most importantly, if they have circuitry that prevents overcharging, uh, then they're generally safe. But even Samsung, you remember the problem they had with the Note 7, Apparently, in in hindsight, it looks like they put too much battery into too small a space. When the batteries started to expand slightly, they would put pressure on the battery chemistry. And in some small number, but still significant number of cases, that pressure on the battery chemistry caused an explosion. Overheating, flames, and in some cases, an explosion. So even a big company like Samsung that makes millions, maybe billions of batteries a year can have this problem. You want to make sure that you get the battery from a company that has a good reputation, that will do the right thing in packaging, and they'll put the circuitry in to prevent overcharging. That's another way that these batteries can get in trouble. In fact, I think that that was what was happening to the hoverboards. They were almost always catching fire when they were plugged into charge. Probably what happened was they overcharged. And when a lithium-ion battery overcharges, that's when it can also explode or burst into flames. All batteries in your smartphones have circuitry that say, ah, I'm getting close to the top, cut it off. And so that's why you want to get a good battery. A cheap battery might eliminate that circuitry or might not be carefully packaged to prevent explosion, things like that. Anchor was a very good Chinese company that did seem to make very reliable batteries. There are other companies like Aukey. I've used their equipment, A-U-K-E-Y. And if you purchase from Belkin, Belkin is a company that actually resells batteries from companies like Anchor and Aukey. But there is at least an additional layer of quality control protecting you, uh, the Belkin name. So I think that's also a safe place. But almost always the best place to get your replacement batteries is from the original equipment manufacturer. If you do get a third-party battery, try to get it from a company that sells a lot of them, has good reviews on Amazon. Uh, you want to be very careful not to get it from just some no-name Chinese company. Those are the most likely companies to skimp on packaging or not provide the appropriate circuitry to protect you against an overheating battery. Overheating is your real challenge. So in most cases, the dangerous time is when the battery is plugged in and charged. If you do get a third-party battery and you're a little worried about it, keep an eye on it the first few times it charges. Make sure it doesn't get too hot. Uh, make sure it doesn't expand. That's another cause of failure in a lot of lithium-ion batteries. The bigger they get, as they get swollen, the more likely they are to rupture their packaging. And once the packaging is ruptured, almost always uh, the next thing that happens is they burst into flame. It sounds pretty dangerous, but again, any technology that can store a lot of energy has the potential for releasing that energy all at once. We call that an explosion. 
And so uh, we have to find ways to keep our gas and our cars safe and our batteries and our devices safe. And I think in general, well-made batteries are very, very safe. There's no guarantees. Get it from a name that you recognize if possible. I don't have a name that I recommend other than Anchor or Aki because, you know, these companies kind of come and go. And almost all of them are Chinese uh, and perhaps not fully uh, regulated. Just buying it on Amazon is no uh, no protection at all. So look at the reviews and try to buy it from a company whose name you know. We'll be back with more from our tech guy, Leo Laporte, right after we take this quick pause for stations along the network to identify. You are listening to North America's premier news and information service for the amateur radio hobbyist. We are This Week in Amateur Radio. One of the questions I get all the time is, well, what is public key cryptography? I'm going to attempt in the next five minutes to explain it in a way that's easy and understandable. But to start, we have to talk about the early days of cryptography. What is cryptography? It's a secret message. You probably did it as a kid. You write something down and you scramble it up. And then you send it to a friend and only your friend can read it. That's called symmetric key cryptography. The earliest way of doing this was something... Uh, it's, I'll tell you how old it is. It's called a Caesar cipher because it was used by Julius Caesar. Uh, it's an alphabetic cipher. The alphabet, A through Z. You assign each letter a number, 1 through 26, and then you scramble it up. What you're doing is a transposition cryptography or transposition cipher is actually a better name for it. What you get is a scrambled up message. And you can easily then take a transposition cipher write it down and transpose it. There's two problems with this. The first problem is it's easy to decrypt. You don't even need a computer to do this. In fact, it's so easy that many newspapers for years, they might even still, I don't know, does anybody get a newspaper, have crypto challenges in the newspaper where they give you an encrypted message and they say, see if you can figure it out. I used to love to do these as a kid. It's a very simple process. You do it by letter frequency. Turns out the English language, the most used letter is, you probably know this, right? E and then T and then A. In fact, I remember the entire sequence by the name Etienne Schurdlou. E-T-A-I-E-T-A-O-I-N-S-H-R-D-L-U. Those are the most used letters in order. Typically, what you'll do is go through a cipher. If there's enough text, you can say, well, the most commonly used letter here is Q. That must be E. And then you can go backwards from that. It doesn't take too much to figure it out, especially if in the cipher they've separated words because two-letter words and three-letter words, it's pretty easy to figure out what those are. They occur very often. Things like an, at, and the. It's not hard to figure these out. So that's problem number one. It doesn't take a genius to decrypt a uh, cipher like that. Problem, And by the way, with computers, you could brute force it. You could do it in milliseconds, very fast. Problem number two is it's what we call a symmetric key cipher. You use the same key to decrypt it as you use to encrypt it. And the problem lies in that you need to transmit not only the message. Julius Caesar would send one courier with the encrypted message. But you also have to transmit the key. Otherwise, your recipient won't know what to do with it. So he'd send a separate courier with the key. Now, if both couriers are captured by the enemy, 
It's all over. It's easily decrypted. So you can see two big flaws with this kind of cipher. And that's because it's a symmetric key cipher. More modern ciphers are what we call public key ciphers. There's two keys. Public key crypto is a very clever mathematical strategy to generate two different keys. Each is a prime number. Each is a factor of one large number. You don't need to know how they create these keys. It's just math. But the point of the generation is it's a one-way process. You can't go in the other direction very easily. Someday, maybe computers will be fast enough to brute force public key crypto. But if your key is long enough, 128 bits or even better, 256 bits, it's going to take a massive computer, many millions of years to decrypt it. So we're not going to worry about that side of it. But this solves the problem of symmetric key crypto because there's two keys. I can publish and give you a public key. Everybody can have it because the public key is a one-way key. All it does is encrypt. It doesn't decrypt. Does that make sense? It turns a message into gobbledygook, but it can't read the key. So in order for me, if you want to send me a message, all I need to do is publish, as I have, my public key. You can use software to use that public key, scramble up a message, and send it to me. You can't even read that message because it's a one-way transition. That message now can only be read by somebody who holds the private key. And that's the most important part of public key crypto is that private key you need to keep safe. You need to put it somewhere. No one can get it. And you even keep it more safe usually by adding a passphrase or a long password to it. So even if they were to get it, they'd still have to figure out what it is by using the passphrase. So this is a huge step forward because instead of having to send a courier, two couriers, one with the message and one with the decryption key, I just send one courier and I shout it out to the world. Here's my public key. You can send me a message. All you have to do is encrypt it with this public key because the public key can't be used to decrypt, only encrypt. It can't be used to decrypt, only encrypt. So I have published my public key. When you use public key crypto, you publish your public key and you keep your private key safe. And if somebody sends you a message, which they've encrypted using your freely available public key, you use your private key to decrypt it and then you can read it. This is a clever strategy. First figured out uh, not so long ago, about 50 years ago, and now used everywhere. If you use Signal, the encryption messenger, that uses public key crypto. If you use PGP or G GPG to encrypt messages, that uses public key crypto. When you surf the web and you use HTTPS, TLS, that's public key crypto. And in fact, effectively, Almost all the cryptography used these days is public key. Certainly the cryptography used to send messages is public key because it works so well and it's so hard to break. I think that makes sense. I hope I helped you. I didn't even bring in Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice because most of the time when they explain this, they do. They bring in these people. And I've seen <laughs> Cloud, Cloudflare has a very complicated explanation of public key crypto that involves a chest with a lock that only goes one way and not the other. And I don't think it's that complicated. Just remember this. You're going to generate a key pair when you first set this up. There's the public key you give the world, the private key you keep to yourself. And now you can be sent messages. Similarly, if you want to send an encrypted message to somebody, 
All you have to do is say, what's your public key? In fact, usually you don't even have to ask them directly. Most people who've set up a public key have published it on the key servers. There's key servers all over the world. You type in their email address. It'll say, oh, here's their public key, and you can send them an encrypted message. In fact, why don't you try it? Download GPG Tools uh, and and search for Leo at leoville.com. That's my public key, and you can send me an encrypted message. If you do it right, I'll send your response back. And for extra points, attach your public key to that message, I'll even encrypt my message back to you. So that's public key crypto. Not too complicated. I hope you understand. Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk high-tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. Here on This Week in Amateur Radio. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Welcome to the Ancient Amateur Archives. I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY. Do you remember that magic moment? No, I'm not talking about a song. I'm referring to that particular point in time when you heard the call of the RF and realized radio was in your blood. For me... That moment came in October 1962, over 40 years ago. In October 1962, the Cold War was at its peak thanks to the Cuban Missile Crisis. The United States was closer to nuclear war than it ever had been. Like most nuclear families of the 50s and 60s, pun intended, we had a bomb shelter of sorts in the basement. One Saturday morning, my father, my brother, and I went down to check it out. Canned food bottled water, first aid kit, blankets, and extra clothes were there. But there was no transistor radio. Worse, we realized we didn't even own a transistor radio. All we had were tube-type AC-only models. And so, that cold October morning, we all jumped in Dad's 1961 Ford station wagon for the trip that would change my life. Our destination was Olson's Electronics on Main Street in Buffalo, New York. For those who don't remember Olson's, it was a discount electronics chain headquartered in Akron, Ohio. They sold radios, CBs, hi-fi receivers, tube testers, and other electronic equipment under the Olson name. In addition, they appear to deal in discontinued, surplus, and overstocked radios under a variety of off-brand names. They issued a catalog several times a year. Unlike Heathkit, Allied, or Lafayette, whose catalogs were glossy, full-color productions, the Olson catalog was printed tabloid-style on cheap newsprint with black-and-white illustrations. Since they carried dozens of off-brand equipment, the catalog descriptions were often generic. A typical ad might say, Six-transistor pocket radio, $5.95. Style and color may vary. 
The Olsen catalog also featured a treasure chest. Hidden within the product descriptions were the names of several customers. If you spotted your name, you got $5. We walked into that dingy, cluttered store, and I was immediately hit with the smell. You know what I'm talking about. The combined odors of new radios, old musty radios, heated filaments, and melting solder. Then, my eyes beheld the exquisite sight of radios of every type in every square inch of the store. My ears caught the sounds of shortwave broadcasts, CB transmissions, and crisp, clear stereophonic music. My hands thrilled to the touch of Bakelite knobs, push-to-talk microphones, and telegraph keys. Deep within my body, I felt the emergence of longings and desires that I knew were inappropriate for a ten-year-old boy. I was hooked. Anyway, my father also caught the fever because he went on a spending spree. He bought an all-transistor four-band radio, AM, Marine Band, and two shortwave bands. Dad bought us each a pocket radio. Mine was a Jade 10 transistor, and my younger brother got an Essex 6 transistor unit. And then we turned our attention to the CB radios. Dad bought three Olsen one-channel 100-milliwatt walkie-talkies and an Olsen audio-visual spotter. This was a 5-watt, 12-channel CB rig, 22-channel tunable receive, and built-in AC-DC power supply. CB crystals, a back-of-set CB antenna, and batteries completed our purchase. The cost? Over $300. That's about $1,200 today, adjusted for inflation. The next day, my father's friend, an avid CBer, came over to check out the radios. He brought a collection of popular electronics magazines from 1959 to 1962, an ARRL license manual, and the ARRL book, Understanding Amateur Radio. He installed the CB in my room, much to my delight, and had a few QSOs with my brother and I as we walked around the neighborhood. Then, my father solemnly removed the microphone and hit it, saying that we couldn't transmit until he received his CB license. It took me only two days to find the microphone and hide it in my room. He never noticed it was gone. The next few weeks were a blur as I explored every kilocycle from the AM band right up to the CB channels. Buffalo was on the shores of Lake Erie, and I heard plenty of marine traffic, which at that time was in the AM mode on the 2 to 3 megacycle band. 75 and 40 meters gave me plenty of AM QSOs. I logged over 20 countries on shortwave and a dozen states on the AM band. The 100-milliwatt Olsen walkie-talkies had a city range of about six blocks, and on the rare occasions when I plugged in the mic in the Olsen, its five watts gave me over three miles, even with the indoor antenna. When I wasn't on one of the radios, I was reading and rereading the popular electronics magazines, devouring the columns on shortwave listening, CB and ham radio, and of course, drooling over the ads. That Christmas, Santa gave me two surprises from Olsen, a tape recorder and an AM broadcast kit. Dad and I assembled the kit. I strung up 50 foot of wire to the garage, plugged in the crystal microphone, and got on the air. The AM broadcaster had a range of about four blocks with very good audio. I was complete. Over the next few years, I saved every penny that I received at Christmas, on my birthday, and from my allowance. 
I tagged along every time my mother took the bus downtown, and I begged her to walk the three blocks to the Olsen store. As time went on, I acquired other Olsen products, a 2-watt, 3-channel CB walkie-talkie, VHF receivers for the low, high, and aircraft bands, as well as 6 and 2 meter, a code practice oscillator, bigger and better shortwave radios, and audio and FM equipment. By 1969, however, things started to change. I now had my novice license, WN2MAM, and Heathkit, Lafayette, and AES catalogs grabbed my attention. A Radio Shack store opened up just three blocks from my house. By 1971, I had a general class license, a driver's license, and access to a car. I gradually sold off my Olsen equipment and replaced them with state-of-the-art radios purchased at the suburban Lafayette, Radio Shack, and Heathkit stores. The Olsen catalogs were tossed, unread, into the garbage. Eventually, they stopped coming. I didn't even miss them. In 1977, I moved from Buffalo to Albany, New York. There was no Olsen store there. Sometime during this period, Olson went out of business. I didn't even notice. Last year, on a visit to Buffalo, I drove down the block where the Olson store once stood. The street was empty. The stores abandoned and boarded up. Later, I got on eBay and did a search on Olson Electronics. Nothing came up. Compare that to the hundreds of items you will find when you search under Lafayette or Heathkit. I went to the Akron, Ohio website and searched for Olson. Again, nothing. I emailed Rex, a discount electronics chain also headquartered in Ohio, and asked them if they were the corporate descendants of Olson. They told me no. Like an unwanted lover, Olson is gone and apparently forgotten. To quote an old song, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Your time is up. Go in peace. But return again for our next installment of the Ancient Amateur Archives. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts. Here's this week's AMSAT report from Bruce Page, KK5DO. Bruce tells us that the 2020 virtual AMSAT Space Symposium and Annual General Meeting will be held Saturday, October 17th from 1400 until 2200 UTC. You do the calculations. Symposium presentations will be a combination of pre-recorded and live video segments along with question-and-answer sessions via the Zoom platform. Things get underway at 1400 UTC with opening remarks, followed by presentations through 1745 UTC. At 1800 UTC will be the AMSAT Education and CubeSat Simulator Talk. At 1900 will be a talk on ARIS and ARIX, followed by AMSAT Engineering. The AMSAT Annual General Meeting will begin at 2100 UTC. 
The symposium will be streamed free of charge on AMSAT's YouTube account. Registered attendees will receive a digital copy of the AMSAT symposium proceedings and will be entitled to join the Zoom meeting and participate in the question and answer sessions. Registered attendees will also be entered into prize drawings. Registration is free and available only for AMSAT members at launch.amsat.org forward slash events. Registration closes on Friday, October 16th at 2100 UTC. This is the ARRL Propagation Forecast. We have an area in the sun's southern atmosphere that is trying to be a sunspot, trying be the operative word. By the time you hear this, it will have graduated into a full sunspot or it will have vanished. There's been a slight bump in the solar index as a result, but not much to get excited about. We have a blast of solar wind due to arrive by early next week. The impacts on the HF band shouldn't be great, however, but it may disrupt some bands above 40 meters. On VHF and UHF, and it looks like operators in the Midwest may want to keep an eye out for tropo openings on 2 meters and up. 6 meters has been fairly quiet in most areas, but even in mid-September, it can still pop open when you least expect it. ARRL efforts are underway to preserve amateur radio access to the 3.3 to 3.5 gigahertz or the 9 centimeter band. For more details on this pending FCC action, we go to Rick Lindquist, WW1ME, who files this report from League Headquarters. A more than 80-page draft report and order, the FCC announced its intention to delete the 3.3 to 3.5 gigahertz amateur secondary allocation that's subject to a phased withdrawal tied to its licensing of new primary users. According to the FCC, the 3.45 to 3.55 gigahertz spectrum will be put up for auction as early as December 2021. Incumbent users, including Amity Radio, will be permitted to continue operating in the band until licensing to commercial interests, presumably 5G, begins. No alternative spectrum was proposed to replace the 9-centimeter spectrum for amateur radio. Last February, ARRL filed comments opposing the FCC's proposal to delete the 3.3 to 3.5 gigahertz secondary amateur allocation. In August, the White House and the Department of Defense announced plans to allow for commercial 5G systems to operate in the 3.45 to 3.55 gigahertz band throughout almost all of the contiguous U.S. In an associated further notice of proposed rulemaking in WT Docket 19-348, the FCC said it seeks comment on whether it is in the public interest to sunset amateur use in the 3.3 to 3.55 GHz band in two separate phases, first above 3.4 GHz and later below 3.4 GHz. We find that removing the existing secondary non-federal allocations from the 3.3 to 3.55 GHz band and clearing these non-federal operations from the band is in the public interest, and therefore we adopt this proposal, the draft R&O says. 
Because the Department of Defense and the National Telecommunications and Information Agency agree that commercial users operating pursuant to flexible use licenses can be accommodated in the 3.45 to 3.55 GHz band at full power and given continued interest in the 3.3 to 3.45 GHz band for future sharing for flexible use licenses, we find that retaining the secondary non-federal allocations across this spectrum would hinder the Commission's ability to offer flexible use licensing in the future, and would undermine the intensive and efficient use of valuable mid-band spectrum. Further, to prevent adjacent channel issues and to preserve the possibility of additional clearing for flexible use licensing below 3.45 GHz, we find that sunsetting the secondary amateur allocation from the entire 3.3 to 3.5 GHz portion of the band is in the public interest, the FCC said. The absolute deadline to submit additional comments on the draft R&O and further notice of proposed rulemaking via the electronic comment filing system or to contact FCC staff on this issue is Wednesday, September 23rd. That's seven days before the full Commission's consideration of the draft for final adoption in order to comply with FCC Sunshine Rules. The plan would leave radio amateurs to individually determine appropriate alternate spectrum from existing available spectrum allocations. The 3.45 to 3.55 GHz segment would be teed up for a spectrum auction that's expected to commence by the end of 2021. This would mean amateurs would have to cease all operations at 3.45 GHz and above by the middle of 2022 at the earliest, based on an FCC estimate. The 3.3 to 3.45 GHz segment is not immediately available for reallocation at auction because more work is needed to accommodate the Department of Defense. Under the rules as proposed, amateur operations will be permitted to continue in this spectrum until sometime in the future when FCC rulemakings establish new rules and conduct a spectrum auction and commercial licensing. Produced by amateurs for amateurs and originating from Albany, New York, you're listening to This Week in Amateur Radio. The Radio Amateurs of Canada is pleased to announce that it will be holding its annual general meeting on Sunday, September 20th. Given the ongoing global pandemic, the annual general meeting will be a virtual event. This year, we are also planning something new, an interactive mini-conference that will feature interesting presentations on a wide range of topics. The pandemic itself will be a kind of headliner when Radio Amateurs of Canada hosts a mini-conference just before its annual general meeting on the 20th of September. In addition to talks about satellite, engaging more youth, remote operations, and a recap of the St. Paul Island de-expedition, the day's program will feature what's being billed as a fireside chat on amateur radio during the global pandemic. Panelists will be Tim Ellum, VE6SH, President of the International Amateur Radio Union, Rick Roderick, K5UR, President of the American Radio Relay League, 
and Steve Thomas, M1ACB, General Manager of the Radio Society of Great Britain. Moderator will be Glenn McDonnell, VE3XRA, President of the Radio Amateurs of Canada. Please note that the annual general meeting is now scheduled to begin at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Agenda items will include Report of the President, Review of the 2019 Finances, Appointment of Auditors for 2020. A question and answer period will follow. This is your opportunity to hear what your representatives have been doing over the past year to raise questions and to make suggestions about how Radio Amateurs of Canada is managed and where it is going in the future. The meeting will be attended by members of the RAC Board of Directors and Executive and is open to all RAC members. Please register by clicking on the Canada 2020 Conference webpage. You will then be taken to the Conference and Annual General Meeting Registration webpage, where you will be provided with additional instructions and a registration form. Please complete the form and indicate that you would like to attend the Annual General Meeting portion of the meeting. Once you have completed the form, click the button at the bottom of the page. You will then receive a confirmation message. We look forward to seeing you at the Conference and Annual General Meeting. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Foundations of Amateur Radio Not every adventure gives you an outcome. Today started with reading a thank you email from a listener who shared their activities and wanted to express their gratitude for encouraging them to get on air and make noise. That in turn prompted the question on the country of origin of that listener and did I know where all my listeners were? For the past few hours I've been attempting to answer that seemingly simple question. Aside from using the opportunity to make an attempt at mapping the distribution of amateurs in Australia, which on the face of it is a trivial exercise, consisting of extracting the postcode from each registered amateur and then putting those on a map. Only the postcodes are not actually single points. They're boundaries defined by Australia Post, and they're copyrighted. Not only that, they change. To access them, you have to pay the post office. If you want to combine a postcode with a population density, so you can see where amateurs are represented and at what level, you go to the Australian Bureau of Statistics for a population density data set. At that point you realise that the Bureau uses standardised regions. Mesh blocks at the smallest end of the scale are essentially the size of 30 to 60 households. The Bureau uses these as the fundamental size for all its statistics. When you attempt to map this onto postcodes, you learn that there isn't a one-to-one -one mapping, and even if there was, it would change every time Australia Post changed the postcode boundary. I will note that this is all by way of a side street in my investigation. I wondered how amateur radio was distributed across the country, and I didn't want to end up with essentially a population density map. More people means more amateurs. 
I wanted to see where amateur radio had the potential to affect more people, because there are more of them in a group. Anyway, then I attempted to look at the podcast downloads and map those to countries. I use AWS CloudFront to make the podcast available so it gets to the user, you, quicker. The logs show which data center a request is handled by. Then I needed to map a data center to an airport code, look that up in a database so I could extract the country, then count how many requests were made per country. Then I started doing that across time, so you can see how that changes over time. At this point I still don't actually have a map to show. While all this was happening, my computer started running low on disk space. Not because I just downloaded some data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, but because some rogue process was writing a log somewhere. So I spent an hour looking for what process that was, killing it and removing the superfluous log file. If this sounds familiar, there's a name for it. Yak shaving. It's originally named after a Ren and Stimpy episode called Yak Shaving Day. Essentially, you do a whole lot of unrelated activities in the pursuit of actual activity, essentially a string of dependencies that distract you from the end goal. In my case, trying to answer which countries are represented within my audience. Why am I not using an amateur radio example? Two reasons. This is amateur radio. For me. Doing charts, wrangling data, massaging stats, finding answers and presenting those are an integral part of the hobby. To me. Just like making this podcast, contributing to discussion, reading and learning, all part of the mix. Second reason is that I wanted to illustrate this with something that wasn't immediately obviously linked to the hobby for most people. A more amateur example might be wanting to go and operate portable, attempting to locate your battery when you find that it's not charged, so you go looking for the charger which you find has a broken connector, so you drive to the electronics store to get the connector when you run out of petrol, so you pull over, get out of the car and trip over the curb and end up in hospital emergency waiting for a doctor to see you. If you think that's far-fetched, I know an amateur who ended up in hospital from yak shaving. We've all had days like that. The idea is that any day that you're on the right side of the earth doing something you love is a good day. Regardless of the end result, this is a hobby after all. I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. One of the worst tasks we get stuck with from time to time is removing rusted antennas and mounting hardware from a tower. Prevention is just as much a part of this topic as is dealing with rusted bolts. The bad news is there is no easy answer to this problem, but let me share some of the tricks that I've used to deal with rusted bolts. Weather permitting, I go up the tower a week before the job date and oil the suspect bolts with a healthy dose of penetrating oil. And don't forget to warn the ground crew before you start. Also consider where you're parked, upwind or downwind from the work site. I literally flood the rusted bolts with penetrating oil from lots of angles. If possible, one more trip before the scheduled removal date to oil the works is also a good idea. Remember to spray the bolts from below you. Never oil things above your head unless you're wearing eye protection. On removal day, I bring a variety of screwdrivers and wrenches. Bring a selection of locking grip pliers with good teeth. Also, bring two hacksaws with spare coarse blades. Before taking a hacksaw up the tower, check to see if it's that type that easily flies apart when you flex it the wrong way. Sometimes several wraps of electrical tape can stop these cheap hacksaw blade handles from flying apart. 
Careful selection of cross-tip bits can play a big factor in removing rusted antennas. An impact driver is also a great screwdriver bit holder for the bare hand due to its size and therefore increased torque. You can cut mostly through rusted bolts leaving a thin strip of steel. Then when all bolts are cut they can easily be broken in fast sequence with a screwdriver or pliers. The other part of the worst case antenna removal is the antenna or mount usually becomes suddenly loose. Consider how you're going to secure the antenna or mount when the last stuck bolt suddenly breaks in half. The use of straps, ropes, or clamps to secure the antenna can help prevent a sudden surprise or injury to the climber. And there's nothing that I dislike more than a surprise or injury on a tower. One of the things to avoid is the sudden jerking of the antenna or mount you're removing, as well as the tower you're on. As you plan the job, consider and plan for the slow and easy removal of the hardware. Also, a plan for what will become of the tools in your hands when the stuck hardware suddenly breaks free from the tower. Just as big a part of dealing with rusted bolts is the prevention of the problem. And there are several ways to prevent it from becoming a problem. First, when you buy a new antenna, make sure all the bolts are stainless steel. Even our local little hardware store carries a good selection of stainless nuts, bolts, and flat washers. Zinc plating wears off after time, so only use non-rusting bolts. Coating U-bolts and screws that are not stainless steel with a healthy coating of grease can prolong life and stall rusting for years. This will require annual recoatings to prevent rusting. A brass doesn't rust, but it isn't very strong for holding antennas on towers. And paint can help, but it shouldn't be put on threaded parts. Remember, tower work at any height can easily become deadly. Money spent on books, videos, and climbing gear is well worth the investment. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartMedia, and Spotify. An amateur radio operator with a prominent role in the Army Military Auxiliary Radio System has become a silent key. Bill Sexton, N1AN, devoted himself to serving Mars following a long, prominent career in journalism that included reporting from foreign bureaus in Tokyo and Beijing for the Long Island Daily newspaper Newsday. A Korean War veteran, he retired from the paper in 1991 and served as the public affairs officer for Mars for 13 years. During the 9-11 terror attacks in the United States and later during Hurricane Katrina, Bill assisted with emergency radio communications, earning him the Presidential Lifetime Achievement Award in 2017. Bill was also the author of Army Mars at 90, Helping Protect the Homeland, a 100-page study of the organization's role in national security. Bill held the Army Mars call signs AAR1FP and AAA9PC. Bill had suffered a stroke one week before his death on September 6th. He was 91. Amateur operators all know the power of sound and the information it can carry. Now scientists at the United States Naval Research Laboratory are harnessing the power of vibration sensing in order to tell them more about moving targets. 
According to an article on the lab's website, using a millimeter wave radar lets operators sense what a target may be doing by detecting subtle changes in vibration. Because it is a remote sensing technique, it doesn't require proximity. According to the article, even a low-power system can detect a one-square-meter target that is about 10 kilometers or 6 miles away. Christopher Rodenbeck, an electrical engineer in the lab's radar division, said the process adds sound to image collections already being done by radar. It relies on a new algorithm that translates small vibrations into sounds that can be measured and characterized. That algorithm still has its patent pending. Michael Walder, superintendent of the lab's radar division, said millimeter wave radar can see things that can't be seen at other frequencies and can't be seen optically. Millimeter wave radar is extremely accurate and has a high resolution. Its electromagnetic waves are between 1 and 10 millimeters at radio frequencies between 30 and 300 gigahertz. The Blindham's DMR net had a quiet beginning, but now its voices are everywhere. On that first day, April 7, 2018, only three amateurs checked in. The net was simply an idea that grew out of an online discussion hams were having on a mail server, but it was soon to grow to be even more. It is now known as the Blind Hams Digital Net and has an international reach with an average 50 check-ins, a group that sometimes climbs to 76. The establishment of the Blind Hams Network Bridge gave more room to grow, and there are now eight nets on the bridge. The Hams also have a presence on Brandmeister Talk Group 31679. Thanks to Patrick, KE4DYI, the connection support DMR, DSTAR, Fusion, AllStar, Echolink, Peanut, and WiresX. More recently, the group added a YouTube channel that includes a roundtable discussion called CQ Blind Hams, and a podcast of the same name has also been created. The Blind Hams group has a strong advocacy voice off the air as well. Roger Clark, VK3KYY, and a team of programmers pressed for the use of open GD77 firmware and programming software to make a Radio Diddy HT more easily programmable by blind users. In Germany, Ian DJ0HF created MP3 tutorials and PDF files to guide users. No radio? No problem. Even without a radio, hams can still be part of the action. Hams who are not on the air can join via the Peanut smartphone app, or just listen to the chatter using their Alexa device, or they can stream audio from the bridge using their Shack computer. A family reunion that was more than 10 years in the making finally happened earlier this month in India, thanks to amateur radio. According to news reports, Gavita Mund, 60, had been in treatment at a psychiatric hospital in Pune and had not seen his family for many years, but turned up mysteriously in February on the island where Gongasong R Festival had just concluded in West Bengal. He was found sleeping beneath a tree, according to Ambarish Nag Biswas, VU2JFA, secretary of the West Bengal Radio Club. The club had been asked by authorities to have local hams assist in locating his family. The man was admitted to a general hospital for treatment, but walked out two days later. He was tracked down and readmitted sometime afterward. Hams, meanwhile, located his family in Maharashtra State. 
After some delays, the man's brother arrived only to discover that a caretaker had put him on a train. And Barish said that Samarinda Sakar Das, VU3, XSS, Debos Mandal, VU3, ZII, and Kalapada Patra, a shortwave listener, were able to find him on September 6th, and with the help of police, the family was reunited. By 11th of September, they were back in Maharashtra. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters all across North America and around the world on great repeater systems like the W0GMM repeater on 147.285 MHz in Grove, Oklahoma, serving Northeast Oklahoma, Southwest Missouri, and Northwest Arkansas. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.